Yes, it is. And it's five, four, three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to Tell the Damn Story with co-host, the legendary Alex Simmons. He is a teacher at the New York Film Academy, a bent creator, a uh, winner of many awards, and writer of Archie's Scooby-Doo, Harder Boys, don't tell anybody, Batman, and <laughs> the legendary Aaron Blackjack Day, his own creation. How you doing there, Chris? How you doing? Thank you for that lovely intro. And folks, this is my co-host and dear friend, Chris Ryan, who has a plethora of material himself, starting off with his most recent project, the new, and not even improved, the new, the brand new Soul Scream Anthologine collection of five, kind of five volumes thus far with another one on the way. Plus, he also has the wonderful, mm, how would you call this a mystery, supernatural thriller series, Mallory uh, Gunner? Supernatural Police Procedural. There you go. Supernatural Police Procedurals. I say that six times fast. Mallory and Gunner, and the three titles are Infernal, Purge, and Presence. Yes. All of them coming out in, in 2024. Right. Plus, the first two are reboots, and the other one will be pure new stuff. Look at him. He's stepping on his own intro here. And then I'm he's sorry. got Genius High, and he's got a simple rebellion, which, boy, that's a whole political thriller that we'll talk about another time. And he's written film scripts, he's directed, he's been an actor, and he's an all-around really great dad. That's my buddy, Chris Ryan. That's very nice. And this is... <laughs> and this, ladies and gentlemen, is Tell the Damn Story. This is the show that talks about the trials and tribulations of writing and how we've dealt with... Uh, stumbles across the, along the way so that you don't have to. We're trying to make your journey smoother, so come along for the ride. Hot dog. And this particular, where we're going, <laughs> carry the ride <laughs> metaphor, <laughs> and so where go. we're going today is actually we're going down Q&A Road. That's uh -oh. right. Q&A Road, because last episode, in our last thrilling episode, we opened it up to questions from you folks, and we have a few. And so we're going to talk about that. Uh, oh, my hair disappears. I love it. <laughs> I love when that happens. Yeah. See, the difference, though, Alex, is your hair disappears and comes back. Mine, however, <laughs> it just disappeared. <laughs> and it just, it's staying in its own dimension there. Chris, we have a few questions from the folks out there in Writerland. Cool. And I'm not going to pick any particular order because they came in irregular. And so I said, let's just tackle them as if we were at an event and people were just throwing questions at us. So we I have to know what questions are coming, but I didn't choose an order and I didn't actually prepare answers. Great. So here we Ladies go. Ladies and gentlemen, if you like what you hear, remember to hit and subscribe. So you That's right. As a matter of fact, hit subscribe. Episode. <laughs> I'm sorry, I stepped on his line. So you don't miss an episode. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. So here we go. Let's go to the folder and pop it open. And okay, like I said, I'm gonna we're gonna hit them the way they came in. So art. Now this is funny. We talk about writing, but Chris and I both have written comics and graphic novels and things like that. So we can speak on this. Art, how do you select artists for the project that you're developing? If it's if you know if the story is the property of the writer, as opposed to if you're working for a major company. So, Chris, 
in your experience, how did you select some of the artists that you've worked with? I have. I've offered work to four different artists, and every single time it was I saw something, and it was a gut instinct. Wow, let's see if this person is interested in working with me. With me, I'm batting five hundred. One, we had a great relationship for a while. Then I think it's my fault. I think I misspoke, and offense was taken and it never we still talk now but it was never really returned another person dealing with the business end was way different than and it just didn't work out between us i wish them both huge success the other two i still work with both of them when i can one is more affordable than the other and both do great work they you see their work on the covers and interior art of Soul's Cream and Palazine. And uh, you will see beautiful covers. Mallory and Gunnar, Infernal, and Purge, which will be coming in 2024. Excellent. So it's always for me, one, does the art speak? And the only way an artist can do that is to do the work that you feel passionate about. And then there'll be a click with somebody. It, it will. And then the second is, Business, all business. Can you afford financially, emotionally? Did the the both people click? That's all. Okay. And it's the same way with writers as well. So, how about you, sir? Okay, funny you should ask. Okay, so one, I have the the pattern of getting to know artists through several different things. Usually, in my experience, it has been I've gone to events like comic cons or art exhibits or things like that. And I've met people uh, or seen their work on display and developed some sort of a, a connection or communication line with them at that moment, yeah. and then explored the possibilities afterwards. You exchange information, email or phone numbers or whatever. And then you talk afterwards, you talk about the project. I would say from a strictly business point of view, you want to have an artist who not only can do the art that you appreciate and you want and need for the job, but also respects deadlines, will talk to you and let you know when they're having a problem or there's a delay or something's come up, that you once you do set on a price that you agree on how it's going to be paid. And mm -hmm. that when you, if you have any kind of confusion or challenges or disagreements that you can keep it on a professional level. When people get hyper-emotional or don't want to talk to us, that complicates things because a lot of us create art for the love of it. That's what we love doing. But if we're talking business, you've got to be able to communicate on a business level as well. So that, that's one thing. And I would say, again, in terms of the process, just and I'll be very quick about this, some artists will, they'll get from you what they, what you want them to do and they'll start working on it and they'll do this elaborate rough draft, but it's elaborate. It takes a lot of time. And I think one of the things that you should look for first is sketches. Start with simple sketches so that the artist doesn't take a lot of time. You both can look at that and say, oh, I like this, but maybe not that, or can you try something a little different so that you're not 
taking advantage of their time and they're not putting a lot of effort into it and then feeling maybe some kind of way when you go, yeah, that's not really what I was thinking. You don't, you want to keep it, the communication's open. You want to keep things smoothing, smooth and you want to respect everybody's time. So those are the things that I think of when I select an artist for a project. Excellent. I'll add one other thing. People might be out there saying, well, where did you find them? Okay. The person who did Genius High's cover and The Simple Rebellion found that person on Facebook. The first two issues of Soul Screen, that person I found in a Fiverr search. Fiverr, the, an online service for, for freelancers. For, yeah, exactly. And the third person who did the rest of the Soul Screen cover art, he was part of a completely unrelated podcast. And I started following his then Twitter account because of the podcast. But then he started posting his art and his covers. Being involved in different things that are somehow related help. The last person pitched me through Instagram. And uh, the pitch seemed great. Sometimes you don't connect. It is what it is. So I wish yeah, that funny person you mentioned that. Let me just throw in a quick warning here, because this has happened a lot. You mentioned Instagram. Periodically, I will get an Instagram, an unsolicited Instagram message from a person saying that they are an artist and they're looking for work and they'll have a, a link to their samples. And if you go in and you see their samples and let's say there's 12 or 15 samples with 33 different styles, some of them being very strong and some of them being very weak and looks a little shaky here and there. I suggest strongly that you don't leap into any kind of agreement with that person, that you either explore that a little bit more, do some more research on them, or you know what, say thank you, but no thank you. Because a lot of times that's, it's one of two things. It's either eh, a scam of some sort, which is unfortunate, or it's an artist representing two or three of their friends, right. and none of them have their business thing together yet. Right. So again, you can explore the possibilities, but be cautious. If the business end starts going sideways, get out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as much as I wish them luck, yeah, that's what happened. So. Yeah, absolutely. All okay. right, what's the next question? Okay, so we have an AI question. <laughs> okay. Yeah, do you feel that AI is okay for a project? Okay, I have a great quick answer for that. No. Next question. No. As a matter of fact, I was fairly ignorant about AI early on, I guess this time last year or maybe a little earlier last year. And I was putting together a teaser package for Soul Scream Anthologine that was going to be Christmas Tales. And I came across this app that uh, helped you create art. And I thought, this is fantastic. You just type in something and it came up and it came up with a really cool cover and something was wrong with the hands. So I edited it, but I didn't know much about AI. Yeah. This thing was AI. Once I realized that I redid the cover at my own expense, I created the AI, but I wouldn't let it stand because that was probably based on someone else's art. No. And a matter of fact, now, when I speak to artists, uh, part of the contract is artist confirms that no AI is used 
to create the art contracted for. Mm. So that's my answer. How about you, Alex? Okay. To be specific or a little bit more sense of clarity for me, when we're talking about artificial intelligence, the, this remarkable capability can be utilized in so many different ways. So the thing that I have objection to is when someone takes the software and uses it to manipulate someone else's artwork to then claim it as their own and sell it. I have a total problem with that. On the other hand, I know of some artists, Mac, you and I both, who use software to alter photographs they've taken of real structures and things like that, and to add them in as background or alter them as background for the artwork that they're creating. So I think that it's almost like a collage. It's almost like digital digital collage right. work. So I think you've got to be clear. I'm saying to the folks out there, you got to be clear as to where your objections might lie with it. If a person uses artificial intelligence or uses computer software to generate their own art, not, separate, not Frankensteining other people's art, but their own art, that's one thing. And then you could look at it and see whether or not you think it's something you want to work with. If that's not the case, then I would say stay away from it. And yeah. of course, how do you find that out? You got to hope that the people you're dealing with are being honest with you. True. And that's why I put it in the contract, because that it holds me uh, not responsible if they are not telling mm -hmm. the, the full truth. It's the best you can do. The person we are talking about does reference research for backgrounds and then paints or digitally draws from there, not copying, not using the original. And matter of fact, sometimes it's uh, photographic stuff and then he draws freehand from there. You get a sense of something. And then there's a layer, so many layers of his own work that the reference is where it should be. Here. Back there in the head, yeah. Okay. All right. So thank you. Thank you for that question, folks. <laughs> uh oh. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, again, Chris and I have freelanced for years, many years. And one of the questions that I see a lot is, how do you make money at this? So here, this next question is, what should you charge for your writing? And how soon can you get paid? <laughs> I love it. Okay. So, uh, it depends on the genre, but most genres have professional associations. If you go on to the association websites, you might have to join up, but there are usually sub-pages or whatever you would call it on that website that will tell you professional payment. Scales. Rates. Yeah. yeah, scales. Now, if you're a brand new writer, some of your experience is going to be, we'll publish you on our website and you'll be able to use that as a credit. That's no money. We'll publish you and we'll send you a contributor's copy. That's one of those copies. No money. I give, I guess you would call it an honorarium. Mm. It's around $35 plus a customer contributor's copy. Some have different rates that go up to half cent, one cent, 
three cent per word. All of that depends on how many publishing credits you have, how good, how well your writing is received. So if you're just starting out, Google, you can find lists of places that you can submit to and then click on each link and see which one still exists because all those lists have a bunch of dead magazines or e-zines or webzines that they tried valiantly and they can't do it anymore because all of this takes money. But you'll find some. And yeah, if you're just starting out, look at the ones that say you'll get an author's credit. And then author's credit and uh, contributor's copy and build up there. Now, Brian Keene, a legend in the horror genre, says that he always did the opposite. And uh, he would go for the very highest paying um, publications. At that time, it was some magazines, uh, maybe men's magazines, maybe uh, um, literary magazines. And then he'd get those rejections and go to the next list, the next couple down, next and then tier, the next yeah. couple down until he got published. That is a very sound plan. And it requires that you do something that every writer has to do, and that is embrace rejections. Can I plug an upcoming uh, project? Go ahead, quickly. <laughs> In 2024, our good friend, Rebecca Cuthbert, is going to be published by my company, Seamus Anunzio Productions, a writing guide called Creep Like This, How to Become a Horror Writer. And it's very friendly, upfront, easy to follow and to feel good about and to apply a guide for exactly this kind of stuff. We'll have Rebecca on, hopefully if it's okay with you, when it comes out and push it. But that kind of guide might be something that helps you. And she talks about all of that. There are those Especially guys out there. In, yeah, absolutely. And this is, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing this myself. But Chris is right. There are guides and rate sheets and websites that will tell you what the baseline fees can be or happen to be. And you can definitely check those. Even with the Writers Guild of America, there are organizations that you can go to. And even if you're not a member, you can go to their website. And you'll see certain bits of public information that they will share. If you really want representation and counseling, all that, then you'd have to join. But I think that what Chris is saying, uh, and, and I'll be brief on this, is depending on where you are in your journey, you can expect either little money or no money to start out. And you want to be clear about what your skill set is. Have you been writing for a while? And is it strong? at whatever level you're at. And so maybe you want to start doing a Brian Keene or are you still trying to get your feet wet? In which case, doing the work, doing the writing, learning from the experience, but starting with, let's just say uh, a middle or lower tier approach just for the experience is definitely a way to go. And I think, especially if you're, and I've had enough experience with some writers who are very timid and they don't have tough skin yet. So you don't want to run into, shall we say, the rejections that that imply something other than you're not ready for them. 
So I think that you should definitely consider yeah. where you are, what you want to accomplish, and then move forward from there. And again, my but hair keeps disappearing. Anything that you get, you can turn to fuel for going forward. But everybody has gotten rejected. Yep. Stephen King went through such a period of rejection that at one point he lost heart and threw Carrie into the garbage. God bless Tabitha, his wife. She pulled it out and read it and said, mm -mm, this is good. Our friend Joe R. Lansdale, he had a big old nail that he put in one, and he would just punch each rejection through until this is when it was paper rejections. Yeah. Punch it through until they were that nail was full, and then he would just move over and put another one in. And it would he'd look up and all right, I'm gonna keep going, I'm gonna keep going. And that's what it's about. If you're looking to make money as you're beginning uh, to write. There are there are jobs in the service industry. There are both Alex and I have been teachers for years because the cold hard fact is even when successful, even award-winning authors of legendary status, such as Alex Simmons, stuff. <laughs> you know, another source of income is mandatory. It's the reality. So you have to, there's that great saying, if you can at all avoid, avoid writing, do so. <laughs> That's the litmus test. If you can't not write, then do what you need to do to put food on the table while you're writing. This is not get-rich-quick scheme. No, not at all. And if you do happen to do that, fine. God bless you there, too. Okay. Okay. Oh, now we're moving into a different category here. With a greater rubbery for four hundred, yeah. No. <laughs> right. With a greater drive towards diversity and so forth in voice and creativity, how do you deal with characters that are not specifically from your background? Wow, we have we've talked about this on mm -hmm. multiple occasions. By the way, folks, you should enjoy some of our previous episodes because we go into some of these other things even deeper. Yeah. But yeah, well, we had a <clears throat> long episode where I came and asked you, having worked for 20 years to get the opportunity to write Blackjack. Some some guys, publishers are much tougher on writers than others. That's all I'm saying. So Some guys make you really pay dues. That's all I'm saying. But after 20 years, Alex actually allowed me to write a Blackjack. Then he changed every line of dialogue. So the, the learning continued. But eventually, I got a chance to write them. And we, we wrote several novelettes, novellas, short stories featuring the legendary Black Jack character, whom I love as much as I love Captain America. And, and let me just, for those of you who have no idea what he's talking about, Black Jack is the story of an African-American sol soldier of fortune in the 1930s. So as you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, Chris is not African-American. Uh, and I know he was not here in the 1930s. I'm <laughs> sure of that. Some days I feel like I was here in the 30s, yeah. And that was the crux of that episode because I had been questioned about who do I think I am writing cops, people of color, and anybody other than me. I thought it was a really rich topic to have. And we 
went back and forth on it. And basically, the long story short, it's a great dramatic episode, and you should listen to it just for the wisdom that is Alex Simmons. But the idea is approach every single character with respect. If you're going to write a racist, write the most thoroughly researched racist you can. If you're going to write a person of color, check that. Do the research and then check that with what they call sensitivity readers. Did I get it right? I did the same thing for Mallory and Gunner regarding police. Did we get it right? And the policemen, the, the sergeant and detectives kicked my ass for weeks gleefully to make sure I got it right. In Genius High, there's the wonderful Stevie, who is a trans character. And you know, what's the research? What did you do? What did you? I observed my place of business. I was a high school teacher for 25 of the 30 years of my teaching career. And over the last 15 years of that career, about every, well, they overlap sometimes, but at least every other year, there would be a transitioning student. You want every student to feel comfortable. You want every student to feel this is a place where I can be me and I can learn and become what I'm supposed to become. And there was this one particular student was he in, in the in in the beginning stages of trans transition transitioning in, yeah. into she. So I'm gonna use they as I think I'm supposed to. I had a hall duty outside the art room and they'd spent a lot of time in the art classes, but they would go out to the restroom or whatever. And this person, they would do these little things where it would be a big, really big flannel shirt that could be loosely conceived as a dress or a jacket, but there's a skirt underneath it. And it was just the most tentative first steps. And once they got out of the art room where they felt at home, they would cling to the lockers almost as if they wanted to disappear into each locker on the way to the restroom and my heart broke every day and i did everything i could to try and let that person know you're a safe space you're in a safe space passing me i was <laughs> let's say i was unsuccessful in getting that message across they never looked comfortable near me um, and then disappeared. My heart broke even more. But, and that's when I started writing um, Stevie in Genius High. And originally she was just to be there to be, I wanted her to just be present, so represented. But as I was writing Genius High, every time there was a plot problem, Stevie showed up and solved it. So she became more and more of a, a bigger role in there. And she's one of my favorite characters. God bless her. She's just so alive. Long story, just a little less long. <laughs> I was putting together something around graduation, and I was looking for pictures that I could use from the yearbook. And he says, how about this one? And it's a picture from prom. It had just come in. And I was doing a newspaper 
<clears throat> mostly photos to give out to graduation. And it was them dancing. Everybody was dancing at the prom. And right in the center, looking gorgeous in a green gown, if I remember. There they were. Biggest, the only smile I had ever seen on them. <clears throat> Stevie. Happy at Lonas was the, the actual kid that inspired Stevie. Huh. And uh, I hadn't gone to the prom because I had little kids, probably at a baseball game or something. But it was so exciting to see that they had gotten to the prom in the body and the personage they wanted to be. And it just made me more sure that I wanted Stevie in that book so that if someone transitioning saw Stevie or read Stevie, the message there was it's hope. It gets better. Mm, Keep going and be true to yourself. That was before they were sensitivity readers or else I would have put one through. But do everything you can to do your homework, do your due diligence to get the characters right. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Alex, um, it was longer than I thought it was going to be. Because <laughs> well, you got into the story and the story had heart to it. And we live, we live a lot of the things that we write about, whether we write about them overtly or covertly. It is a piece of some experience that we've had or something that we've seen that touched us in some way. So that's a reality. And my answer to that question also is very much one, what Chris said about being respectful of the characters, understanding that you're not that 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 person or that you haven't lived that lifestyle. And subsequently, you have to do your homework. You do your homework, you do it to the best of your ability. And then absolutely, you run it past people who know and who will be honest with you and be supportive. The other thing I will say about that and it's it's a double-edged sword, but I swing it anyway. Many, many moons ago, white writers, people of the lighter hue, could write about anything. They could write about any culture, any lifestyle, male, female, you name it. They could write about it because it's their world as it was set up. And people of color and even women, many women, were relegated to only spectators or we could work from the shadows and maybe get a little something here, a little something there, especially if the publications were specifically aimed at our community. But over the decades, we've reached a point, kicking and screaming, where we are out in the marketplace much more. And to me, to relegate the rule or to stand by the rule that you can only write about what you know hurts everybody because ultimately... I've never been a 15-year-old female, but I've written about them. I've never been a cartoon dog, but I've written about it. I've never been in space. I've never fought vampires. I've never done a thousand and one things, but I've written about them. And I've written about them coming at it from telling a good story, doing my homework, and trying to be respectful of the characters and be as inclusive as I can be within the range of my skill set. So I think I don't want the pendulum to swing backwards to where, okay, people of color can only write about people of color, in which case then they can only write about the gender that they are or the lifestyle that they've chosen or the community that they live in. No, I think if anything, we should widen our scope and take on the full-blown responsibility to do it right and to, as Chris loves to say, serve the story. Yeah. yeah. So that's where I'm coming from on that. 
Okay, let's keep on moving here. Keep on moving. That's another, <clears throat> that's another money question, and we've talked about that one. Here, here's let me let me take this from another angle because the question has two parts to it. So I'll take the second part of it. What constitutes a professional author? If you have a tie. Is <laughs> no. it Windsor not? Yes, <laughs> Windsor's not. That or else you're not a pro. <laughs> There's a lot of different answers to that question. Most people say if you're a publisher or a profession. Okay. But there's a I tell you, there's a million independently published people who put out stuff that's not professional. Mm. So what would I how would I differentiate that? The proofreading is non-existent. So there's a lot of typos. The writing is weak. The layout is shoddy. The covers are inferior. Excuse <coughs> me. All of these things indicate a lack of professionals. There are a couple of writers that I have witnessed that just troll other writers. They're not professionals. Mm. Do I believe you can be professional and be an independent, uh, independently published? I think I'm proof. Will any everybody agree with that? Nah, but I can't change everybody's minds. I can just put out the very best product I can put out and try and market it so that it can find its audience. And every once in a while, someone will find it and it'll spark their heart. And to that person, I am the most professional of writers. Mm. Other than that, there's, to quote Joe R. Lansdale, it's good to be vetted, to be to have someone say, yeah, I'm going to work with that piece or and that writer, and I'm going to pay that writer out of my own pocket. That's what I did with Soul Scream and Thalazine. I paid over 30 artists for their work, closer to 40 if we use the visual artists as well. And... um. Yeah, you had to deliver the goods. Yeah. So there you go. Professionalism is, uh, you can look it up in the dictionary. You can look up the word. There's a picture uh, of me and Alex right next to it. No. <laughs> uh, I would say that for me, the standards are similar to what Chris is saying. Uh, to be a little bit more specific from my side of this, I would say if you knock something out, if you're lazy and you just throw something together, it's not professional. If you can't take critique on the work, it's not you're not professional. If you plagiarize, you're not professional. All right. We can, and I know this happens, we can be fans of somebody's work, whether it's a comic book, graphic novel, or a novel or a film. We can love somebody else's work and want to do something similar. But if you straight up copy it, or you turn out something that basically is the same storyline, but you've just thrown in your dialogue, it's not professional. No. There are rules to being a professional. And I think they supersede whether or not you get paid. Because sometimes some professionals do things for free, or they get very low fees. And there are a number of Hollywood artists, superstar actors, who do theater for almost no money. Right. Or come across a film script of an independent that they love the character so much. Yeah, I'll take scale. Because they want to do the work. They want to do the work and you want to do the work and you want to do the work well. And you bust your butt to make sure that you cross your T's and you dot your I's. And if you screw it up, 
professionally, you accept, I screwed up, I'll do better next time. So I think it's a lot of attitude and it's also how you carry yourself. I know in the business world, and I'll make this short, I know in the business world that you can get into arguments, you can cuss people out and say things about folks, mama. The way I was brought up and the way I like to do business is I sit and I negotiate. Somebody says something foul, you're wasting my time, I need to leave. I don't want to be exchanging cuss words with you. It's just, it doesn't serve me. So professional is I'm going to come in, I'm going to present the work. You like the work? Great. We have a problem with work, we discuss it. We don't need to cuss each other out. We don't need to go dirty, nasty. I don't need to talk about you behind your back. I want to be professional. And that's what I try and share with my students too. Bring your A game so that you can walk out with your head held high. And if you don't like a situation, know that you have every right to turn it down professionally. Yep. Okay. So that's that. For <clears throat> and we got a few more questions. Just a few more. Just a few more here. Oh, this is another money question, but I'm going to, I think we've covered that. Should you have other sources of income while yes. in your profession? And you said, yes, absolutely. Okay. Oh, here we go. Here we go. We were talking about when you're creating characters that are not from the background that you're from, the race or the culture or the gender or whatever, how do you do that? Here's one is how do you develop characters' personality traits? How do you develop a character and give them some authentic personality traits, habits, and so forth? All right. Well, the first thing you do is you apologize to Alan Simmons. Uh, we were going to go back and forth as to who answered first, and then I forgot. Alex, would you like to answer <laughs> this one first? <laughs> I can't yeah. believe I did that. I love this man, though. How long have we known each other? 30? Yeah, somewhere between 35 and 40 years. Uh, you know, It's an interesting, you know what? It was the summer of 84. I had just gotten back from college, and my brother said I needed to do some work in the community. Uh, and he sent me to see, I always forget, what, what was your... Barbara, oh my God, what is Barbara's last name? No, I just forgot it. Barbara, but that was her first name. Yeah, Barbara's, I think it was another B, Barbara something, was, but... Barlow, Barbara, Barbara Barlow, Barlow Executive yeah, and, Director of uh, Bronx Creative Arts for Youth. And a gatekeeper. She was not impressed with me. <laughs> <laughs> and that sparked uh, the first script I wrote for you guys. I brought it in. Which is how I he met got her in. On, met her on a Friday, and I just worked the whole weekend and brought home. I said, what do you have a lot of? And she says, we just got a box of hats. I said, all right, can I make an appointment and see you on Monday? She says, yeah. She had no idea what I was going to do. And I brought in what was literally a first draft. Of, a spec uh, script, by the way. Yeah, folks. a spec, spec. script yep. for a children's play, Billy Wizard and the Evil Eye. and Based on a bunch of hats. <laughs> yeah, based on a bunch of hats and imagination. And I never got the impression that Barbara change your opinion of me but oh maybe we can work with this kid <laughs> i was funny i haven't seen her in years and i'm not going to digress here because we, we already we, did but okay but where we're going with this is i just love chris that's all that's basically what i was going to say go. and so going back to who answers what which what eh how do i how do you build chris character? And I both chris and i both have a methodology involving what we call a character bio Right. Chris takes it to to galaxies far beyond my own, and I bow to him on that. Uh, he has a hundred plus questions. I have about fifty. 
right? Somewhere between 40 and 50 questions, depending. But what it is, is every character has a life before the story starts. I often say to my students, unless the character is born when the story starts or somewhere within the beginning of the story and dies before the story ends, they came from somewhere before it starts and they're going somewhere afterwards. Mm -hmm. And you need to know that world because that's that world where they came from is what made them who they are and put them in the frame of mind they're in and gave them the emotional stability and instability that they're utilizing as they move through your story. And so that means you need to create that backstory, that history. So I answer a bunch of questions about likes and dislikes, ages, preferences, foods, friends, relationships, all that kind of stuff. And as a matter of fact, we've given away the 40 question bio guide several times. So I will try and put a link in this show so that you can just grab that and download that for your Good own start. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so I tend to put my characters through that list and answer as many of those questions as I can as I'm starting the writing process, understanding that as I continue the writing process, I learn more about my character and I can adjust as I go. And I like to live with my character. I invite them in, let them invite them over for dinner, yeah. take them out to the mall with my wife, take them to shop. When I go for a walk, I'll take them with me. The idea is to ask everything about your character. How would your character react to walking a dog that is being very excitable or that is resisting walking or that just decides on a summer day to lay in the grass? And how your character reacts to those random things informs, I got really angry. Why? Where did that come from? And then you start playing. And a lot of it is situational uh, improv in your head mm -hmm. uh, the 40 questions have stuff about when was their first job what did they make someone whose first job was right out of nba school in their father's firm is a way different mindset than someone who delivered papers as age 10 or 11 and or all those not. little things inform character if you have a quarter of a billion dollars in a bank account or whatever on your portfolio, you're going to react to your house flooding very differently than if you have $85 in the bank and no insurance. Those things. And you may never use them in the story. But the more you know about those characters, the more your choices and character moments become organic. And that's how you serve that damn story. And I would add to that in two things, two, two bear traps to be aware of, uh, especially if you're male. When you write women in particular, don't write it from the way that you see women, okay? This is one of those times when you gotta do your homework. You gotta run it by some other people because how we see things is one thing, but how we see as individuals, how we see the world is one point of view. And our job is to get into some of those other POVs in order to have that character be the character and not simply an extension of ourselves. And the other thing I would say is children. A lot of writers, especially uh, aspiring and emerging writers, people who are still working up their muscles, uh, children as props. A little kid probably doesn't know this. A little kid wouldn't do that. Really? 
think back to when you were a little kid and and your mind and your eyes and everything was trying to take in everything and asking questions like crazy and your emotions were right there a good deal of time whether you were shy or outgoing they're little human beings yeah. with, with with far less restraints in some cases so when you're writing children give them the same respect that you would a full-grown adult in terms of developing that character as a full human being okay can i tell two quick anecdotes two quick anecdotes yes you can uh, while my hair continues to disappear <laughs> during the prep for forrest gump the director or producer was i had cast tom hanks and had cast the kid and they was like how are we gonna get this kid to speak in the right accent and Tom Hanks famously tells the jail of saying, let me talk to him. And the way Tom Hanks talks in that film is exactly the way the kid talks. So listen. Mm -hmm. When you're around kids, when you're at a, you might be like, oh my God, I have to go to this kid's party. Treasure! Instead of talking about the, who's going to win next week's football game, hang back a little bit. And listen to them and how they interact with each other. Yeah, take a little notes if you can. Go to the men's room or ladies' room or restroom. Write those down. That's why I love index cards. You might hear gems of how they say things. There's a ton of videos online where just Instagram videos or whatever. Look at reels and people put their kids up. And just not, I don't care what's going on in the video. I want to hear how the cadence, what they're saying. <laughs> All right, another, an embarrassing anecdote, okay? You were okay. talking about writing women, do your homework, right? So as a very young writer, I think it was my first writing class in grad school. So maybe, you know, as not as young as you would hope to be for this mistake I'm about to tell you. One of the homework assignments was to write a sex scene. And the problem, the, the challenge was that these are really hard to do and bring character, right? So... There I was. Uh, every assignment that I had that year, I was applying to what is now Infernal, but was City of Woe way back then. Uh, Whether I used it or cool. not. Okay. Huh? Yeah, when the I novel used it that or, you were working on, yeah. Yeah, I was working on the novel, but whether I was going to use the scene or not, I was going to write it as if it's a scene, just as an exercise. I wrote a scene about a married couple, and they were at a point where... Um, very loving relationship, but the case was stressing him out, so that was stressing her out. So the first half of the scene was an argument, an apology, and then makeup sex, right? So they had people read it. I had to read mine out loud. And the professor was so cool, one of my idols to this day. At the end, she says, or reality's sake Chris I'm going to suggest that they probably don't reach orgasm together matter of fact it might be a better scene if she doesn't <laughs> and that was a very big insight <laughs> into the differences and what guys think is going on and what girls know is going on. So do that homework, bro. Oh, God. That's, wow. That's a great, that's a great brilliantly. story. 
And she had, she was so gentle with me about it. And the other people in the class, especially the women in the class, just nodded and supported her answer and gave me, didn't crucify me. I don't know. You might get may, might get crucified today because they're they hold everyone to a, a stricter regimen. But every, everybody knew we were learning. But uh, it was one of the great writing lessons of my life. <laughs> that a fantastic. You've never shared that story before. Yeah, I know. There you go. But it's wonderful. <laughs> See what you get here and tell the damn story. Oh my goodness, that's hit the like and subscribe. That's right. <laughs> Because because there's more of those stories in the treasure chest. <laughs> oh my God! There you okay, go. we've got another question, one please. More. We got one more for the for today. All right, and this is another one that we've actually. It's interesting. This is this one's come up a couple of times before in the past. The saying is "done is better than perfect." What level should being done live at? Meaning. When do you determine that, okay, I've hit done as a professional as opposed to whatever else I, I think that would be? I have a really short answer. Okay. First draft. I will be coming out in 2024 with a book called Let It Suck. It's a short piece about getting through the first draft. Done is better than perfect. First draft is about expressing the story. And then you go back and make the story better and better first draft that applies to first draft okay see nicely done <laughs> you see what i did there you see what i oh, hey hey, hey. Uh, that's the kind of humor you get here and tell the damn story yeah Hit but like, like and subscribe. subscribe anyway right? <laughs> okay. i would also say that something that i say to my students that re revisions are your friends not your punishment so i agree with chris that the first really big challenge for a lot of writers, whether they're emerging, aspiring, or even many who've got quite a few books or projects or, yeah, projects under their belt, is getting through that first draft. Because sometimes we hit hiccups, we, you know, life happens and we get discouraged or any number of things can slow us down or stop us in our tracks. So getting through that first draft, actually getting from beginning to end in the let it suck first draft, is an accomplishment and that is a done for that but then or that and is not then, publishable yeah and then you say revisions are my friends yeah because that gives you the opportunity to go back into the work and discover oh this is what i was writing oh this works i need to shorten this or i need to develop this a little bit further or blah 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 and just make it that much better and, and, you can and, do... and you can experience the ecstasy of seeding. When something happens later in the story, you're like, oh, if I just mentioned something or drop this prop in this early scene, then it all oh, pays seeding. off later in the story. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love it. You also get to discover pacing. You get to mm -hmm. discover dialogue. You get to discover more about your characters and nuances. You get to discover where I had him talking for a, a page and a half when he really shouldn't say anything. Yeah. Oh, you know? that's such a great moment. Yeah. You say, you know? say to yourself, say less. Yeah. Oh, yeah, baby. When you tighten it up until finally it reads, oh, yeah, oh, wow. And you start to feel like a little like you're, you're dancing in your chair, you know, because those are great moments. And I would say the toughest thing for people, in terms of the word done again, the toughest thing for people 
is if you're insecure about your work or you're insecure about your skills or you're you're still so new to the process that you're afraid to send it out there, at a certain point, you have to let it go. And so sometimes done doesn't mean, yeah, it's finished. I feel good about it. It means it's time to let it go and see what happens. Done is better than perfect. Done isn't done. First draft, best draft, bull crap. One of the great gifts of writing is rewriting. Mm -hmm. I'll go with one of my favorite writers is a playwright. I'm not sure this generation knows him, but they should. Neil Simon. Very oh, po- very populist, oh, yeah. populist wrote hits for Broadway, comedies and soft stuff. And but one of the things that was always most impressive with the people who worked with him is when they put it up on its feet, right? That's after you let it suck, mm-hmm. right? And you're reading it out loud for the first time for our purposes. But he would just have a read through of some, and people would say, Ah, this is a problem. Or would the character do this? And his answer was always, Oh, I can fix that. I can fix that. When, and one of the people who worked with him said, I never saw a person ru- run back to the typewriter as fast as Neil Simon did. And that's why he was great. Rewrite is the secret. Embrace rewrite. Yeah, absolutely. And that is our episode for today. Well, I well I've humiliated myself, but I think there's a lot of information there. <laughs> That you can use, ladies and gents. Uh, uh, Chris, somewhere down the line, I'll try and match some of those humiliations just to there balance it out. You know, cool. just so you don't feel alone <laughs> out there. Just so you don't feel alone. Folks, again, please send more questions in. Because if we don't know the answers, we have plenty of folks to reach out to. Yeah. Get them. Of course, we'll probably know the answers. But no, but seriously. And we have interviews with so many different types of writers. And we have quite a few coming up in 2024 that I'm very yeah. excited about. Mystery writers, horror writers, a cozy mysteries, children's books. We have a number of writers coming along the pipeline. So here we are. Here we are, willing and more than happy to share whatever we know, whatever we've experienced. And again, if we don't know, we'll seek the answers for you. Yes. We will seek Padawan. Mini, mini, chili, beanie. Yes, okay. All right. Chris, as always, a pleasure, a thrill, an excitement, a joy, a rapture after 30-some-odd years. Yeah. And Alex, thank you very much for kind of carrying me through this. I've got a bad cold, and you helped me look like I was doing all right. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's what the coughing was, folks. He doesn't smoke. If, you, yeah, if you're, no. you're listening to this rather than watching, he doesn't have a cigar in his mouth. No, my dad smoked, and I would get up in the morning, and he would be in his chair, in his boxes, with his luckies and behind him would be this cloud that was about four feet off the ground and i would you know (laughs) whatever that dance is when you go under the pole limbo (laughs) under the smoke as if it wasn't gonna follow me around but that was what i had to do to get to the cheerios so yeah (laughs) i because of the smell and that that smoke i never was interested in my uh, smoking myself yeah Yeah. no i had in in my Late teens, no, early 20s, I explored cigars for a minute because they look cool. (laughs) And you know what? I discovered that, A, they don't taste good. B, hot smoke in my mouth does not a pleasure make. No. And coughing profusely just seemed to be a warning of something that I was doing that I shouldn't be. So I had a... uh... 
Oh, yeah, and I did relative. a pipe too. I did a pipe too for the not illegal stuff. I did that because of my Sherlock Holmes thing. Well, but, a, so I still have, matter of fact, I still have. There it is. My Sherlock there Holmes pipe, but no tobacco in it. I'll, yeah. I'll if it was a little like, longer, it would be a Gandalf pipe. But yeah, I had a, a relative who would break out the cigars, and everybody, all the men, had to go out on the balcony and smoke a cigar. So one year I went out there, and the kids were about five. And one of them, I'm not going to name because they'd be mad at me, wandered out and saw it. And his eyes got really wide, saw me with the cigar, and he ran to mom crying. Oh, my goodness. Daddy's going to die. Oh, you know, my goodness. Dare program or whatever. So I had to show him that I put it out, and I never smoked cigars again. And then I guess it was their 25th birthday or one of these birthdays. I see a picture of them at the party they were having. Same guy. Cigar. And I was like, but he goes, I was really little, Dad. I was like, okay, sir. And it was not very often, but it, the irony was not lost on me. <laughs> yeah, life did that. Watch this. That, that'll yeah. be in a story somewhere. Of course. It will. Anyway, as we were everything saying, is material, folks. Yes, absolutely. Take care. Live long and prosper. All that good stuff. See you next week. Peace, brothers and sisters. Adios.